Thank you for directing your internet connection to this sermon audio page for Christ Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Learn more about Christ OPC by visiting our webpage at www.christopcatl.org. Currently, Christ OPC is meeting on campus each Sunday at 11 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. for worship using social distancing protocols and assigned seating. Sunday school is offered to children and adults at 9.30 a.m., concluding at 10.30 a.m. for a brief time of fellowship before the 11 o'clock worship. A volunteer-staffed nursery is available for Sunday school and the 11 a.m. worship. Nursery volunteers and children receive temperature checks prior to admittance. Please contact the church through its website for additional information and directions. As we come to the reading of God's Word, I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Verses 1 through 12. And as you're making your way there, our text is in a section that's often referred to as Isaiah's Apocalypse. It's highly symbolic. It directs our attention to the last day and what will happen when Jesus returns. It's in the middle of a series of oracles of judgment against the nations, which, as we come to it, is one reason why this text is so shocking. You don't expect the good news that it brings. And before we read it, let's ask God's blessing. Join with me in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We are grateful. What a blessing. What a gift. We thank you that it is food for our souls. We ask then that you would nourish us upon the fat pastures of Scripture. O oh Lord, if there are those amongst us who do not know you, may, may today be the day of salvation. Would you save the lost? Would you build up the found? Would you bless us with your word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. 
This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his wall. He will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. May God bless his word to us this morning. What had life been like for the people of God in Isaiah's day? They had a ruler named Ahaz who feigned following the Lord and imitated the nations around him. Second Kings chapter 16, he worshiped idols. He even offered his son upon that altar as a sacrifice. The faithful had to endure this guy's sorry leadership Additionally, there were looming threats that were coming against the nation. Syria and Israel, they tried to coerce Judah into joining a league against the Assyrians. When the southern kingdom refused, members of this alliance came against the southern kingdom. And then on top of all of this, there were the Assyrians themselves, and they were posing a threat. They had invaded Judah itself and had begun to conquer it. What was life like for them? Well, it was full of stress, struggle, and sorrow. It's much like ours today, where people are dying from an unseen enemy. Millions have lost their jobs. And social tension appears to be just around the corner. For some, loneliness has set in. For others, relationships are breaking apart. It feels as if people are about to collapse. And friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not immune to any of this. 2020 is not the year that you thought it would be. It's not what we had hoped for. What are we to do amidst all these pressures? What did Isaiah do as he faced similar conditions? He praised the Lord. That's what he did. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. We are called, you are calling us to praise the Lord. Why in the world should I do that? Don't you see what's going on in our society? Don't, you don't know what's happening in my life, pastor. And you're telling me that I am to worship God? Yes. It's exactly what I'm saying. And in our text, we are given reasons why we should. First, praise because the Lord is sufficient. Verses 1 through 5. Isaiah begins by announcing, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise you. And did you notice the emphasis there? This is personal for Isaiah. He is determined to bless the Lord despite his problems. Ungodliness was rampant. Nations are threatening. 
And most people in Judah, they loathe Isaiah. They can't stand him. By and large, he was a rejected prophet. And yet, he takes his eyes off of his surroundings and directs them to God. And he worships. And friends, that is to be us. Why? Isaiah says to the Lord, for you have done wonderful things. Now that word wonderful there, it refers to supernatural acts, which include Exodus chapter 12, God delivering Israel from Pharaoh's mighty hands. Acts chapter 2, him raising Christ from the dead. And Titus chapter 2, God regenerating sinners. Isaiah 25, 1, these wonderful things were a part of God's plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. They were prepared, fulfilled, definite, and they should compel us to praise God, irrespective of our circumstances. The Lord has worked supernaturally. Believer in Christ, he has exited you from Satan's dominion. He has canceled your record of debt. He has made you spiritually alive by the Spirit. Praise the Lord then, even when uncertainties envelop you. Worship God. Don't be fixated on your situation or on yourself. Praise the Lord. Focus on him because he has done wonderful things. And, I say, and Isaiah says, do this also because, verse 2, look there. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. Here we have a city that the prophet says the Lord has destroyed. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 10, it's a desolate city. It's one that will not be rebuilt. As a result of that kind of language, some connect this city here to that of Jericho because similar terminology was used to describe it. Others link this city here to Babylon itself. But perhaps it's simply best to remember the genre that we're talking about, that we find ourselves in this morning. This is apocalyptic literature. That's where we're at. And that means that this city is representative of the great Babylon, the city of man, and what will be concerning it. The world in opposition to God will one day be no more. The Lord will make it so that, verse 3, strong peoples will glorify him and ruthless nations will fear him. What does that mean? At the least, it's Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the sovereign of sovereigns, so that no matter how vehemently the nations rage against God, they cannot and will not thwart his purposes. They will be overcome and compelled to honor him. But perhaps this is also a reference to the Lord's saving activity in the world because strong peoples will glorify him. 
reminding us how Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, the Lord turns his enemies into his friends through Jesus and by the Spirit. And beloved, that is exactly what has happened to us. Once we were rebels, but now we're redeemed. And oh, how that ought to make us sing. We have been plucked from the desolate city, destined for destruction, and brought into the kingdom of God all through Christ's saving work. Here is a cause for praise. If ruthless nations will honor the Lord, how much more should we who have been saved out of them? Such saving truth should propel our praise today. But so should the fact that the Lord is a stronghold. The prophet moves from considering the future to reflecting on the past. Isaiah says of the Lord, look at verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. God was this kind of help for the widow of Zarephath. You remember her? 1 Kings chapter 17. She was on the verge of death. She only had enough flour and oil for one more meal for herself and her son. But what happened? Well, the Lord supplied what was needed. A jar of flour and oil was given that wouldn't run out until the drought was over. For her, God was, verse 4, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. How bad were her circumstances? How bad were things for Isaiah in his day and time? It was, verse 4, like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You ever watch TV, watch the Weather Channel, and see those nuts who are hanging out reporting in the midst of a hurricane? The wind's blowing all over the place, and they're about to be toppled. Or, you know, those who do the same kind of thing in the middle of a desert in the summertime. How crazy. It's blazing outside, and they're fading away. Well, that's the sense here regarding the troubles that assail God's people. The storms on Jordan's banks are hurricane strength. And the heat of hardship is melting. Maybe this morning, that's the way you feel. As if you are about to be toppled by your concerns. They're blowing so hard against you that you're white knuckling it. You're barely hanging on. The sweltering nature of your trial is leaving you in a sweaty pool of despair. What do you do? You imitate Isaiah. You praise the Lord. You worship God. Why? Because the prophet says of the Lord, verse 5, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heed by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. In other words, the Lord is sufficient for every threat that comes against you. COVID-19, check. Dwindling bank accounts, check. 
Uncertainties about the future? Check. Relational tension, social upheaval? For each, God is enough. The Lord is your shelter. He is able. Worrisome circumstances, they may be beating you down, but God is enough for you. Was he not able to save you in Christ, forgive your sins, and deliver you from Satan? Is he not able to help you right now? Of course he is. And do you know what that means? You should worship him right now and not focus on the squalls in your life. If you do, if you focus on the storms of life, you will stumble. You will melt in the face of hardship's heat. Instead, bless the Lord. Delight in Him. And do you know what you will find? The God who is enough for you will enable you to stand. Praise the Lord amidst the pressures of life because he is sufficient for you. But our text gives another reason for worship. The Lord is victorious, verses 6 through 8. In 2016, after the LeBron James-led Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA Finals in dramatic fashion, do you know what they did? Or how about this year's Super Bowl champions? or last year's PGA Masters winner? What followed their victories? All of them ate. They had a party, a feast. And you know what? It's actually something that is quite ancient. In Isaiah's day, when one army defeated another, often a grand dinner followed. It communicated victory and security. There is no more threat. Let's feast. And that is exactly what the prophet sees next. Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And you'll notice there in that verse that it says, that this takes place on this mountain. Now, what mountain is he talking about? But it could be a reference to Isaiah chapter 2 and the mountain of the house of the Lord, or from Exodus 24 and the covenant renewal meal that took place at Mount Sinai, regardless of what the reference is directed towards. It actually is communicating something very important to us. That there's a, a multitude of people that are gathered together experiencing fellowship, the fellowship of God and the fellowship of one another. And what does the text say about who will be there? Verse 6, all people, that is all types of people, Jew and Gentile, the elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what will they be doing? Eating and drinking, rich, scrumptious food, 
well-aged, refined wine. No expense is held back. Only the finest is given and tasted. Now, what do we learn here? I think one thing we learn is that God likes food and drink. He created them. The Bible is full of situations where people rightly enjoy a good meal. Genesis 19, Abraham and the three celestial guests. John chapter 2, Jesus at the wedding in Canaan. The Lord's Supper. And here in our text, there's delectable fare and drink, which Revelation 19 identifies as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The feast of feasts which means it is okay to enjoy good food and good drink in moderation, of course. Because, listen, that's exactly what we'll be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. As one writer put it, those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that is all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. We will feast in the house of Zion. Thus, it is okay to enjoy God's good gifts of food and drink right now. Just do it God's way. But I want you to understand something. The depth of enjoyment being spoken of here can only be fully realized by remembering what this great meal in Isaiah 25, 6 represents. Victory. God will win. And we, through him, safety and security will be known. And there will be feasting like never before. However, what will God be victorious over? That's the question. It's a last enemy. A paralyzing foe. One that seemingly hunts every single person in this room. Verse 7, it covers all peoples. It's like a dark shadow always there, a veil that's spread over the nations, a cloud so thick that no light from below can pierce through. It's death. And its reality flies in the face of modern mantras like fame, I'm going to live forever. And yet, if we're honest, death's fact jolts us a little bit, perhaps a lot. We naturally want to distract ourselves from it with entertainment or work. However, when our bodies begin to deteriorate, cancer sets in, viruses infect, we see death for what it is everywhere and powerful. Just ask the doctors and nurses that are taking care of people today. Sometimes they feel helpless. Death is an enemy stronger than any of us. 
We cannot master it. We cannot stop it. But it is not more powerful than God. Isaiah says there is coming a day when, look at verse 8, the Lord will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. There will be a time when death itself will die. And all mourning from it will end. And yet to really grasp what's being communicated here, you must get an important exegetical point. The things God will do in verses 6 through 8 appear to be future-oriented. That's why you see the word will there. The victory he brings is pointing forward to something. And yet, in the Hebrew, most of these verbs are in the past tense, imperfect, denoting what God has done in some sense. So we have to ask a question. Why past tense verbs in a section that is oriented towards the future? At the very least, it gives us certainty concerning death's demise. The grave will one day have its own grave. God assures it. And it is so certain that he speaks of it as if it has already happened. And we are also reminded here that death's downfall doesn't begin sometime in the future. At the end of days. It has already started in the death and resurrection of Christ. Through the cross, an empty tomb, Jesus began to hammer the nails into death's coffin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 and 56. We read it just a moment ago. Jesus ripped out death's stinger. Through Isaiah 25, verse 8, his taking away the reproach of his people. The grave's disgraceful taunts and accusations, they say to you and me, you're hopeless, you're helpless, you're hell-bound. But Jesus silenced death so that, believer, you hear something very different. Beloved, forgiven, child of God. Jesus brought victory past tense, ensuring victory, future tense, which tells you, believer in Christ, present tense. You don't have to fear death or how it will come to you or what will happen when it does. You don't have to despair amidst the prospects of a novel virus, a malignant tumor, a deteriorating disease. Jesus' suffering and resurrection liberates you from death's paralysis. He secures the victory. And the same hands that were pounded into the tree for you will wipe away your death-induced tears. And they will never return. Oh, how we long for that day, do we not? So what do we do until it comes? We praise the Lord. Why? He subdued the sepulcher. While we as Christians will be eating delectable delights in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus will have swallowed death for us. 
How can that not energize us to exalt the Lord? Don't let your current circumstances suppress your singing. Regardless of the anxieties of life, see the God who is victorious in Christ and worship him. Praise him. But finally, one more thing. We do this because, rather simply, and yet profoundly, the Lord is God. Verses 9 through 12. Remember that Isaiah was not appreciated by many in Judah. Most despised him, rejected his ministry. Today, few people would have liked his Facebook posts. No one would have watched his TikTok videos. And he probably wasn't going to receive a whole lot of Christmas cards around this time of the year. He was spurned and ill-treated. So besides having to deal with Ahaz's sorry leadership and then foreign bullies seeking to take Judah over, he was faced with alienation, derision, and persecution. And of course, there was the prospect of death. All these troubles encircled the prophets. But considering them, what does Isaiah want most? Verses 10 through 12 direct our attention to the judgment of God. Maybe that's what Isaiah desires. He's primarily seeking justice. While God's hand will rest upon his people, the Lord's foot will trample upon Moab. The enemies of the Lord, those coming against Isaiah and the faithful, will be, will be judged. They will be made into a dunghill, the text says. And it will be so bad that they will be swimming in human waste from the neck down. Their pride will give way to putridness. That's what the text is emphasizing. God will bring judgment like he did to Sisera in Judges chapter 4. When the Canaanite general died at the hands of the woman, Jael, who took a tent peg and pounded it into his skull while he slept. Or, as what happened to Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, when he received the praises of the people declaring him to be a god and not a man, what happened? The Lord struck him, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God will humble the boastful. Verse 12, no high tower, no fortification, no walls will keep him from doing so. The pompous he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground. And surely such a picture of coming wrath should lead us to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? Lest he humble you in judgment. Fly to Christ. Let Jesus be your refuge, your salvation from what your sins deserve. There is a strong emphasis on the justice of God as this passage ends that we might repent and come to the only hope for sinners. Come to the one who took up the criminal's position on the cross for the guilty. 
Come to him who walked out of the tomb, conquering sin and death. Come to Christ, lest judgment fall upon you. And you might be tempted to think uh, that this justice spoken of in chapter 25 of Isaiah, verses 10 through 12, is really what the prophet wants most. After all, the guy is being mistreated. Eventually, Isaiah will be sawn in half for the faith. Or you might assume that Isaiah's deepest longing is for national threats to subside. Or a godly leader, wouldn't that be great? Or the death of death spoken of in verses 7 and 8. And and listen, no doubt there is truth in all of this. Isaiah does desire these things, and rightly so. Friends, there's nothing wrong with wanting justice. Peace and no more tombs. But there is something Isaiah wants more. There is another desire that dwarfs all others. It's his deepest longing. It's verse 9. Look there. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. What does Isaiah want above all? It's the Lord himself. Yes, deliverance is important to him. Victory over enemies and death are key. But it is God who has his eye. Two times he says, we have waited for him. And the stress is on the Lord. Above all, he seeks God. Is that where you are today? There's nothing improper about praying for the eliminating of viruses. Justice to be served, peace on our streets, jobs to be restored, death to be eliminated. But what do you want most? Sure, you may shed tears over your troubles, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yet, what is chief in your affections? When it comes down to it, what is your greatest desire? Is it for your circumstances to change? Or for the God who changes circumstances? Is it deliverance? Or the Lord who brings it? Is it the benefits of Christ's work? Or is it Christ himself? Do you want what God can do for you? Or do you want God preeminently? A young man came to a pastor one day. He was weeping uncontrollably. And the pastor thought to himself, I wonder what happened. I wonder what he did. Did he cheat on his wife? Is he enslaved to some sexual sin? Did he receive bad news about a loved one, about himself? What has gripped this man? that he would be this moved. And so he asked, what's wrong? Do you know what the guy said? 
I just want to know God. I desire Him above all. Oh, that that would be us. That no matter what we face, the trial or the trouble, that we would hunger for the Lord above all in good times and tough times, that our highest affection would be for Him, for Christ, and that it would be evident in this way. We bless God regardless of our burdens. We delight in Him despite our doldrums. How in the world is that possible? I want you to understand something very important. Your worship is fueled by your wants. What do you want? Honestly, search your heart this morning. Is it the Lord first? Now, what do you do? if your chief desire is not the Lord. Verse 9, you behold God. You see Jesus who made the cross his crown, the grave his footstool. As one Puritan put it, you come and have your heart warmed at the fire of Christ's love and mercy. You say, I'm so sorry, Lord. Please forgive me for being cold today. You repent. You repeatedly plead for stirred affections. You keep your eyes on Christ. And you declare he is the loveliest of 10,000 loves. And I want May that be true for all of us today. May it be our cry. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us in your son. We thank you that you are sufficient. You are our shelter our helper in time of need. We praise you that you have delivered us, delivered us from Satan, sin, and death. We look forward to the day when death will finally meet its end completely. In the meantime, help us to worship you. May it be that we want you above all things and that our lives show it. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.